I want to invite you to think about something with me for a moment. I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to ask you to truly think about it. Uh, I am not going to ask anyone to share it, so uh, take you off the hook on that. No one will share this uh, publicly, but I do want you to reflect upon it in your mind. Uh, It's an important question. In fact, I would say this, uh, how you answer this question has more to do with your future, with your sense of peace, security, and contentment uh, than your bank account or your job security. I would even go so far as to say that how you answer this question has more to do with your overall health. Your, your overall health has more to do with how you answer this question than your diet and your exercise regimen. Okay? Here's the question. How did you get where you are today? How would you answer that? Literally. How did you get where you are today with children with responsibilities, with family, with job, with assets, material possessions, with relationships, the neighborhood you're in, with the connections you have, the obligations. How did you get to where you are today? Now, I want an honest answer. Don't, don't give the, you know, the Jesus church answer, but the, the honest answer, the one you'd show your wife and say, yeah, that's how you think you get where you are. Or, or you'd show it to your worst enemy, and they would look at it and say, yeah, that's how that person thinks they got where they are. Think about it for a moment. How did you get where you are today? Now, I suspect that our answers are as varied as the faces looking at me, that they're very different for for all of us, but... I think one thing our answers reveal about us is how we think life works. That's really what I'm asking because you, you think about it. How, how do we think life works? Do we think life works like this? You work hard and you get what you earn. You get what you, you, you deserve. Uh, is, it, is it hard work and luck? Is it, is it hard work, determination, and serendipity? Is it a mixture of all those things? Uh, is, it, is it that you're, uh, there's this thing called fate, quite impersonal, this force that puts you in the family? You, you know, why were you born in that family at that time in history, at this particular time in history, in this culture, in this setting? What, how did that, is it fate that puts us where we are and where you are today? Unless you think it's an irrelevant or kind of a metaphysical question, I would suggest that whatever you think got you where you are, is what you actually think will get you where you're going. And in that way, you see, how you answer that question controls you. You may not think about it, but it does, because you think, this is how I got where I am, and this is what I'm going to do to get where I want to be. And this is why it matters. Now, we are in a book of the Bible that answers this question. And it answers it multiple times in multiple ways. It affirms and describes what? God's works of providence. What are God's works of providence? God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. This is from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, of course. The Bible teaches us, men and women, we are where we are by his providence. This becomes abundantly clear when we we explore and continue to explore this story of Esther. 
And so I want you to turn to Esther chapter 2. We're in verses 5 to 23. Esther 2, 5 to 23. And what we'll see, and I could say this about almost every message we are in in the book of Esther, but we're going to catch a glimpse here of God's providence in life of Esther and Mordecai. We get introduced to them. And, and we're going to understand better how, how to wrestle well with God's providence because I assure you, it's a wrestling match at times. But we'll also get some insight in how to rest in God's providence. Because the degree to which we rest in that providence, God's working out of his will and purposes, to the degree that we rest in it is the degree to which we live, I believe, in our present moment with a, with a certain sense of hope. Because we know God put us here and God will take us there. And we rest in that hope. Now, let me give you a little background to the section we're in. This is just review as we continue to go through this book. We are in Persia. We're in Susa. The, it's the winter capital. Um, there is the great king of Persia, Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus. He's ruling this kingdom. And the story starts with Ahasuerus throwing this massive banquet. How long was the first banquet that he threw? How long was it? Six months. So, you know, you just go, whoa, half a year dedicated to a banquet for leaders and military leaders, political leaders all across his provinces. The, the six-month banquet ends with a week-long banquet for those in Susa. And at the end of that banquet, what does he do? He commands his wife Vashti to come to the party that others might see her beauty. And again, we don't know what all was entailed in that, but what we do know is Vashti said what? No. Vashti said no. And the text reads, the king became very angry and his wrath burned within him. Now, you know, some of this is, I think with our cultural context, it's, it's kind of funny, honestly. It's almost silly some of the things that start happening in this story. And it's okay to giggle when you read some of this because the story actually goes from giggle to, that's awful, to that's crazy to this is horrendous. He just moves back and forth throughout. Um, well, the, the, all, uh, they were afraid, all the men were afraid that all across the country, all across the provinces now, because Vashti said no to you, uh, you know, all the women are going to say no to their husbands, which they didn't need an edict for that, right? It's already going on. But they, they, they're going to say no to, to all the men. And the, the text actually says the edict went out that said every man should be the master in his own house which I think is pretty good policy. You know, but no, just kidding. Uh, uh, Michael, you know, talk, made those comments on policy last week. Uh, once again, it's his attendants who step in. Notice this is a king with all this power and it's like everyone tells him, kind of takes care of him in, in a way. Steps in with a solution. They say, let's gather all the young, beautiful virgins of the provinces. Let's bring them here, beautify them for a year. We're gonna read this text in a moment. At the end of that year, uh, the, each one is going to sleep with the king for a night, have sex with the king for a night. And the one that pleases the king, that one will be made queen instead of Vashti. Historians are uncertain, but we're thinking probably 400 young ladies ripped from their homes to be placed in these harems, house of women. I'll say more about that in a moment. Now, uh, I told my girls I would give this caveat because I know there are 
there are exceptions, of course, to this. So they said, Dad, you've got to say this if you're going to say that. So they, with the exception of Ben and Sean. So we're taking Ben and Sean out of this, okay? This, to me, is the original Bachelor. It's beautiful women, one guy, and they vie for his attention. Again, now I'm not throwing the, the show under the bus, per se, but... You know, I have a little trouble with it, but I know Ben and Sean, they're the good guys, so we're going to set those aside for my girls. Now, when my girls watch this, um, I kid you not, uh, you know, they have bachelor parties and watch this, and the, pl- the TV's in the playroom, and so when they hear, and this hardwood stairs going up, when they hear my feet on those stairs and they're watching it, they begin to yell, no negative energy, no negative energy, you must leave. And I get tickled when I do it, so I turn around, I walk back down the stairs so they can, they can watch this. Now, no negative energy, okay? Uh, we're going to watch this kind of modern, this ancient bachelor in verses 5 through 23. I want you to follow along in your Bibles. I'm going to take it in three parts, okay? Here's three three sections to this part of the story. There's Esther's distance from, or I'm sorry, Esther, yeah, Esther's distance from the throne. That's going to be verses five through seven. Then we're going to note her path. What was her path to the throne? That's verses eight through 20. And then the last part's going to be Mordecai's faithfulness to the throne. That's going to be 21 to 23. I'm going to repeat those as we go through it for those who take notes and take mental notes, okay? Let's start with Esther's distance from the throne, verses five through seven. God's word to you and me today. Follow along in your Bibles. Now there was at the citadel in Susa, a Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives who had been exiled with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther. Esther's Hebrew name, Hadassah, means a myrtle, a flower. Her Persian name, Esther, may be a take off of Ishtar, which is the goddess of love and war. It's not uncommon that the exiles would have a Hebrew name and then they would have a Persian name given them. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had no father or mother. Now the young lady was beautiful of form and face. So the, the contestants needed to be beautiful. Notice Esther's beautiful of body. Her body was beautiful and her face. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So the, the, the virgins are being gathered here. We're introduced just before they're gathered to the protagonist in our story. We haven't heard from them yet, Esther and Mordecai. Uh, Mordecai, think of him as Esther's dad for all practical purposes. They're cousins, but he's, he's older, and he's, he's raising her, for she has been orphaned. Now, there's much here, but there's just one thing I want us to grab from this. When we get introduced to them, I want us to feel the tension that the author is introducing. I want you to feel this tension that we know this pageant is going to go on. And the one qualification of the pageant is that the woman be a virgin and she'd be beautiful. And, and we get introduced to Esther, who it says is overqualified because she's not just beautiful of face in a sense, she's beautiful of body. And, and in our mind's eye, we got this tension coming in of, oh my goodness, could it be Esther that, that would be going there? And yet... This tension is created because we see that she is a Jewish orphan. 
And what I want us to sense is, listen, there is no one on the planet who has less chance of being queen than a Jewish orphan. Now think about this, Jewish. What do the Persians think of the Jews? Well, we're going to see next week and all through this letter, it's like a roach that, you know, would be smashed and you would go, I hope it didn't ruin my shoes. I'm not over-exaggerating in the sense that that's what we're going to see. That's what they think of the Jews. And then this word orphan and, and the truth of the matter, she's got no father, no mother, she's orphaned. That's, the, that's below the bottom of the social rung. An orphan is that, that that's the, the child who has no future, has no hope, has no connections, you see. And so immediately we've said this, this tension is set up of, I mean, she's beautiful, she's beautiful, but she's a Jewish orphan. There's no way, no way that this is going to happen. The author introduces this tension to us. So from Esther's distance from the throne, let's go to Esther's path to the throne. Verses 8 through 20, it's a long section, so just stick with me, eyes on the text as I read. So it came about when the command and the decree of the king were heard and many young ladies were gathered to the citadel of Susa into the custody of Hegai, that is, Esther was taken into the king's palace into the custody of Hegai, who was in charge of the women. Now the young lady pleased him and found favor with him. So he quickly provided her with cosmetics and food, gave her seven choice maids from the king's palace and transferred her and her maids to the best place in the harem. Harem's a house of women. Esther did not make known her people or her kindred for Mordecai had instructed her that she should not make them known. Every day, Mordecai walked back and forth in front of the court of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and how she fared. Now, when the turn of each young lady came to go in, I want you to watch this, not to be inappropriate in, 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 this, in this context we're in now, but uh, th- this, this phrase, go in, go in, it, it's, a, it's a highly sexual, sensual passage. It's talking about have sex with the king. This is what we're describing, and he uses this phrase throughout the passage. Now, when the turn of each young lady came to go in to the king, Ahasuerus, after the end of her 12 months under the regulations for women, for the days of their beautification were completed as follows, six months with oil of myrrh, six months with spices and the cosmetics for women. The young lady would go in to the king in this way. Anything that she desired was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in. And in the morning, she would return to the second harem. So they go in and they don't go back to where they were. They go into the, uh, you know, where they've, they've had their night. Now they're over in this harem to be waited to see if they're called on. They go into the second harem to the custody of Sheashgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. They're now concubines. They're lesser wives. She would not again go into the king unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. Now, when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter, came to go in to the king, she did not request anything except what Hegai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the women, advised. And Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus to his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month Tebeth in the seventh year of his reign. Remember, Vashti was vanquished in year three. 
We are now four years later when Esther ascends. The king loved Esther more than all the women and she found favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his princes and his servants. He also made a holiday for the provinces and gave gifts according to the king's bounty. When the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not yet made known her kindred or her people, even as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther did what Mordecai told her as she had done when under his care. Now you'll notice when this passage begins, the verb tenses are generally passive. So you get this sense that it says they were gathered, that Esther was taken. We don't see anything in the text. Some scholars do. I, I, I tend to not, as you just take, the fa- the, take it at face value. No sense that Esther weaseled her way in, that she seduced her. You, know, you, don't, you don't seduce a, a eunuch, but you did something to gain his favor, you know, and, 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 and worked her way to get everybody to like her. I don't, I don't get that in the context or in the text itself. Now, it's not to say that Esther didn't have choices. She did, didn't she? She makes two really important choices in the text we can talk about later, but she has choices and her choices matter. But the text gives us a sense that Esther is being carried along in a current that is not of her making. It's being swept up in this current. Now, when I did the introduction to the book, I described to you this illustration that I.B. Kuyper had, had come up with on some difficult doctrines of the Bible. And I, I amended his, his, uh, his illustration to, to put it at, he called it, you know, he was talking about the doctrines like of predestination and election where, you know, is it, do we choose God or does God choose us? Is it all God or is it me or whatever? And, and I said, you know, imagine a rope, and he said, imagine a rope that goes up into heaven and, and up in heaven, it goes over a pulley and then the rope comes back down so that, so that in in our eyes, there are two strands. I'm going to call it the two strands of providence, okay? Everybody with me? So that in our eyes are two strands. Now, let me ask you this question. How many ropes are up here? One. But there are two strands that come down in our view, in our vision. And when we think of God's providence, gang, we always want to keep in mind, you know, is it God or, or do, do, does my choice matter? Well, if you choose one strand... And you say it's God, and the floodwaters are rising, and you go, it's all God, you'll not be lifted from the, from the floodwaters at all. If you say, well, I've got to rescue myself and stay out, no, you're not going to rescue yourself and stay out. God's providence is when you and I say, it is God, and we say, and my choices matter, and when we do, and the floodwaters rise, we're above the floodwaters. Choose one and you, you sink. Do you see that? And it's important to keep in mind, God's providence is God's in control and my choices do matter and I will hold this mystery and be lifted and held. Esther's choices really matter. God is in control and orchestrating all things according to his good purpose and plan. Now, the days of beautification, uh, you know, I think when you read this, it, it, you know, you, you can get it. I mean, they, they took these young ladies and for a year, you know, six months of oil, massages, cosmetics, 
uh, fragrances, you know, six months of, you know, more preparation. They would fumigate themselves. Can you imagine a whole year that they're doing this to, for the food they ate, et cetera, to be beautified? You know, it's like, um, it's like Wagyu steak. You ever had Wagyu steak? You know, the Wagyu steaks, when they take the cows and they just feed them everything perfectly, they massage them. It's a terrible analogy for this thing, totally. But, you, but it's like they're taken care of for one purpose. This is what's happening in this story. Um, it's like being at the Grove Park Inn, if you've ever been there, a spa. Think of the amazing spa in the world. You stay there for a year. They stayed for a year. Now, each woman... Each virgin got one night with the king. And then after their night with the king, uh, they went to that other harem. And y'all, they would stay there the rest of their lives unless the king called. This is not good. This is not pretty. This is not right. Um, Ian DeGuid in his commentary, I think, captures the, the, the I call it the pathetic ethos of the, the scene. He writes, quote, the king wished to add to his collection of living dolls. Those chosen would live in secluded splendor for the rest of their lives, even if they were only rarely taken out to play with, end quote. That gets at it. It's terribly wrong. It's degrading. It is against all that God intends for women. I want to step back from the text, though, because we're dealing with a Bible story in the providence of God. And I think as you read this, it, it, it reminds me that the story of redemption this story of redemption shows us that the means, the means by which you and I are redeemed is messy business. It's troubling. It is at times morally ambiguous. It's a sorry blend of the worst of humanity and some of the best of humanity. And it just gets all in this ugly, difficult melu. Sometimes the way God does things, I don't get, y'all. I don't understand. I'll tell you this. If you can read your Old Testament honestly and not be troubled in your soul and spirit by some of the things God allows and literally God does, then I don't know if you're reading the same Old Testament as I am. I see why critics attack it. I do. I see why they go, I can't believe that. And I, there, there are times when I do. I, 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 I can't believe God you do that. But there's no mistaking God is at work in this story, okay? And that, it's a little bit of a hyperbole because God could have done it any way he wanted, but the, the story is given to us and we get this sense from the story that if Esther doesn't become queen, then the Jews are gonna be exterminated. If the Jews are exterminated, then where's the Messiah gonna come from? This is kind of the tension that we're gonna feel in the story. But think about this. Is it, it, to, to, for this story to happen, Esther must be orphaned. Oh, that's a good thing. No, that's not a good thing. That's not good that, that it, she lose her father and her mother. Is, is it good that 400 young women are ripped from their home? You know, I, I did a Curtis or Kirby Sullivan's wedding last night. Curtis and Lee uh, here, go here and known Kirby since she was a little girl. Could you imagine a year ago if, if, if the government would have come and said, we're gonna take Kirby now and Kirby's life was ripped out and she's, she's beautified for a year and if she doesn't please the king, then she'll never marry, never have her own, you know. This is not good at all. What's happening? God's most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. I can't explain it all, 
And I'm gonna tell you this, there's, you don't go to rescue God and sanitize it. This is in our Bible. God's at work. God's not ashamed to, of this story. And this is one of the reasons I find a tremendous amount of hope in the book of Esther. This is just my wiring. It's not just that, you know, how, you know the story ends and, 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 and we know there's rescue and this is great. I find great hope in the story in the story itself that, oh my goodness, God's at work and this is morally ambiguous and it's, I'm not sure if this is good or right. Um, you know, why, why, didn't, why didn't Esther dare to be a Daniel? We got Daniel who said, no, I'm not gonna eat the food. Why didn't Esther just go, no, I will not come. And I don't know, but she didn't. We've got a lot of scholars who believe Esther and Mordecai are not examples of faith, but they're examples of disobedience, which you can go there and God's grace is still shown through their disobedience. I don't, I don't go there myself. What I go to is I read the, the story and I go, man, that's the Christian life. It's complicated. It's a... Uh, there, you know, there are things in my life that are morally ambiguous at times where I'm not sure what the right thing to do is. I, I don't know. I don't know if I'd have been a Daniel. I think, if, I think I'd have been more like Esther. I think I'd have gone along. I don't know. You know, this is, this is the journey of faith. And yet in this crazy, difficult, morally ambiguous scene, God is at work to accomplish his purpose through imperfect faith. Now that gives me tremendous, tremendous hope. As Michael said last week, we are broken people in a broken context and things don't work the way we often wish they would. But I can trust God knows what he's doing. Well, that's her path to the throne. Let's get this back in. Mordecai's faithfulness to the throne, verses 21 to 23. The text goes on in those days while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Bigthan and Tiresh, two of the king's officials from those who guarded the door, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. They guarded, for example, maybe his you know, bedroom chamber. So, you know, that's a great place to kill the king and they could let someone in. But the plot became known to Mordecai and he told Queen Esther and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. And when the plot was investigated and found to be so, they were both hanged on the gallows and it, was, and it was written in the book of Chronicles in the king's presence. We'll see this when it comes to Haman. Hanged on the king's gallows is probably not hanged as a rope around the neck as it is that the Persians would, would stick a person on a pole. It's gruesome what would happen when they did this. Now, Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. Y'all, this is not like, you know, the dads who sit at the benches in the mall while someone's shopping and while people go by. It's not people watching. The King's Gate's an actual building. Uh, it's an administrative building there at the entrance to the palace. It's where uh, business was conducted, administration of the kingdom. It's like you and I going to the county administration building and getting our uh, license plates and it's re registering for a building permit. This is what was happening. And so we believe that after Esther became queen, that Mordecai was in some official capacity within the palace. Now, while there, notice the tense again. It became known to Mo Mordecai. Do you see that? It's not that Mordecai listened. It's not that Mordecai investigated. It's not that Mordecai had a hunch and he tracked it down. It came to him. 
that these two want to kill the king, and he does the right thing. Reports it, uh, they are impaled upon poles, and then it's recorded in the king's chronicles. Now that it's recorded, it's going to be important, right, in a couple weeks when we get to when this story comes back up. But at the moment it happened, it's recorded, and then the story goes on. Now, there are, there are so many lessons, insights that, boy, if you read through this, you go, what does this say about God? What does it say about me? What does it say about salvation? Many of those. I'm going to take three for the sake of time. I'm going to talk about two that relate to God's providence and one that relates to God's love because understanding God's love helps us rest in God's providence. You with me? I'll repeat these over and over. First lesson, God's providence moves at glacial speed. God's providence moves at glacial speed. God is not in a hurry ever. Yet he is impeccably punctual. God is not in a hurry ever. Yet he is impeccably punctual. Mordecai and Esther, they're they're there for decades, generations that they're living in Babylon Uh, It's a decade that we think this whole story takes place. Things are happening in year-long cycles. Can you imagine Mordecai walking in front of the harem and and knowing what's going on in there and he's worried about his his daughter, so to speak, his cousin Esther. And and that whole year, I I gotta imagine there are times like, what's going on and will this ever end? How long is this gonna last? Day 20, day 30, day 300. And it goes on for a year. (coughs) Trying to, to discern God's providence at times can be like, like trying to discern a tree grow by just staring at it. You know, it's like it's, nothing's happening. Especially for us, I want to say this, let's own our own culture. We live in a day when if your computer doesn't load in 0.9 seconds and the new ones load in 0.2, what do you do? You get rid of the slow one. You know, when was 0.9 slow? Today. How about information, how it flows? When someone tells you something, that's personal and private, but they know about it because it was on social media because someone else said it and they said this and all this information moves like this and you know, we, we, we go at this pace and when we live at this pace, we can get frustrated, but I'll say this, you move at that pace, you expect God to move at that pace and when he doesn't, you'll miss God's providence. You miss seeing the providential hand of God at work. I was uh, trying to get uh, Darden when he had his accident moved from uh, Knoxville to Nashville he had to go out a trauma unit, a trauma unit and move into an inpatient rehab facility after his motorcycle accident, my son. And we were in uh, Knoxville that whole week. And at the beginning of the week, I thought, I think he needs to do his rehab here in Knoxville. Lisa and I had talked about this and so he could stay in school, et cetera. And it would be inpatient for several weeks. So we made plans and you guys in the medical field know this and you know it as people who have medicine, you have to get, you know, medical care taken care of. This stuff moves at glacial speed. My goodness, you know, you have to apply to, to get an inpatient, then they have to have doctor's meetings, and then they have to refer, and they have to decide, will we receive you and all this? Well, I got it all set up to stay in Knoxville. By the end of the week, though, at least I thought, he needs to come to Nashville to do this. And so we started looking at getting him in Stallworth Rehab, which many of you have been there or, or visited or you know where it's at, the rehab facility up by Vandy. So the, the liaison said to me, do you want me to try and get him in Stallworth? And now it's on Thursday, I think, and he's going to be discharged on Saturday, and we don't have enough time or window. But I said, yes, begin the process. And I didn't know what we would do, but I just knew we needed to get him back to Nashville. So she began the process. Now, here's what I didn't know. I knew none of this. There's a lady named Liz Mezzanice, 
she was in she was in Las Vegas, Nevada that week at a convention, and she is the director of marketing for Stallworth Rehab. She's at this convention, and she said she she looked at her computer one day, and she's catching up on emails, intake, who's coming in, who's in discharge, and she saw the name Darden Shadrach. She thought, man, there can't be that many Darden Shadrachs around. It's got to be Lloyd's son, and she looked into it, realized it's my son, and she called Stallworth, and you know, she expedited the whole process for him to get in. Now, here's what you want to, like, I knew none of that. I didn't even know Liz. I don't know, I don't know Liz. I have no idea that she, she goes to fellowship in Brentwood. And she had no idea my son had been in an accident. Now, I'm, I'm sharing this story because it's like, wow, that's great. And you know what? I want you to know this. That doesn't happen often in my life. Don't, don't go, you know, good for you. I'm glad that happens to you. It never happens to me. You know, it doesn't happen to me either that much, okay? But it happened in that moment. And it was at a time when we needed a glimpse of God's providence. It would just move in slow enough to see it and recognize it and put the pieces together. But you know what my life looks like? I'm being honest. My, my life is normal like yours. My life looks like this. There's a day and there's another day. And that's not a good day. And there's another day. And yet my life unfolds like yours, okay? I'm not, it's not always, wow. It's in moments, though, I think when maybe we most need it, that God's gonna reveal his providence. We can't see the beginning from the end, but God can. Isaiah 46, 10 says, that God, decla- God says, declaring I am God and there's no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish my good pleasure. Who can know the beginning from the end but God? And how can he know the beginning from the end and know that in the beginning from the end, he will accomplish his good pleasure unless it's a God who knows from before the beginning and he knows what happens beyond the end and all of it is within his scope and control that his good pleasure would be accomplished. Life's events kind of hide that providence of God but when we slow down, I think sometimes we can catch a glimpse of it I'll tell you this, quite frankly, thank goodness for the book of Esther because y'all, you can read it in 20 minutes and let me tell you something, you'll see the glacier move. That's why we have the Bible. Help us see the glacier move to give us hope right where we are. Number two, God's works of providence are always consistent with his character, not with the way we think things should be. I'm going to say it again. God's works of providence are always consistent with his character, not with the way we think things should be. Lloyd, where do you get that? Well, I'm going to take this out of verses 21 to 23. Let me set this up in this way. The way things work in the Persian empire is when someone does something for the king, the king does something for that person. I mean, this is the way it works. I mean, historically, I'm, I'm not saying... I'm saying in historical records, we know this is how Persian kings operated. Now, think about this. What's, what's pr- something pretty important that can be done for the king? Hmm. How about save his life? You know, <laughs> that's pretty big. But you would think, man, someone saves the king's life, the king's gonna do something for that person, right? Well, in this text, in this context, it's recorded, but nothing's done. We have no record that Mordecai, who knows these things, said, hey, I saved your life. 
you need to do something for me. You don't have this sense that he demanded this. Now we know, because we've read the whole book, we know that this is going to come up later. And God's going to use the timing on this in magnificent ways beyond what Mordecai or Esther could ever imagine. But what I want us to see, just staying right here, is that providence is not that things always work as they should. It is often God intervening. This is crazy. So things don't work as they should. Now, we, re- we, re- we resist that. But what's not working, it's often, it's God's providence that's making it not work. And, and that helps me. Providence helps me keep my hand and my mouth, my, you know, my hand out of stuff and my mouth shut in business. It's not mine to address. It's one of the most difficult things in life when you do the right thing and get the wrong result. Isn't that just make you want to scream? You ever done the right thing? Relationally, what, what, you did the right thing and then what came back to you is the exact opposite of what you did the right thing for. Providence reminds me it's not my place to, to make it right. It's not my place to ensure justice, to fix it. I don't always do this. Oh, I don't always do this. But if I can, if I can calm myself in the spirit and step back and trust God's providence rather than situations in my world right now where I know something, I know what was done and I know it was done right and yet the result's bad and I wanna get in there and straighten it out and go, that's not right. Let me tell you exactly what, let me tell you this. And I go, I gotta, can I step back? Can I step back and trust and rest? This is God's big world. I'm his, this is, he is working out things in his timing and his way. Be careful when you demand what you think you deserve. Who knows what works of providence are at work? What we can know is when things aren't as we hope, that God's works of providence are always consistent with his character. That's what we can know. Which brings me to the third lesson. This has to do with God's love. God's works of providence must always be measured by the cross. God's works of providence must always be measured by the cross. Now, I'm going to ask the ushers if they would uh, get up and and go to the back and then begin to get the elements to pass the Lord's table. And uh, the Lord's table is really our principal expressed. It's illustrated. It's lived as we participate in the Lord's table. If you've placed your faith in Christ, you've trusted that his life, death, and resurrection was for you, this table is for you, and you're welcome. If you're a guest, even, you're welcome at this table. Now, when they pass the elements, I'm going to ask that you take the bread and the cup and you hold it. So you just put your notes down or whatever. You don't need to take any notes. I'd love for you to just continue to listen because I'm going to bring this back into our context and our story. So take the bread and the cup and hold it and then we'll take those elements together. Let's think about it on a number of different levels. Let's start here. Think about the cruelty of the cross. Uh, I don't think, I really don't think you could find another moment in human history that was more cruel and unjust. I don't think it exists. And yet we know, we know because the scripture teaches this, 
that that was the work of God's providence to save and redeem and make a way for us to be in relationship with God forever. You see that? So if you start, always start there when things are going in your world and God's providence is difficult, we always go, well, it must be measured in light of the cross. Now, let me get another category for you to think about the story in. In Esther's story, there is a pagan king who, remember I told you there's this four-year gap between uh, Vashti's out and Esther's in? You know, in those four years, historians tell us that he went to war, got totally defeated. Uh, this is historical fact. Came back, you know, with his tail between his legs and he's missing Vashti. And they say, well, let's do this so you can have companionship. So let's just think about it this way. There's this king who longs for companionship. And so he rips young women from their homes, beautifies them according to their traditions, has sex with each one just so he can satisfy his own companionship longing and sexual, sensual lust, quite frankly. And the one he likes the most, that's the one he's going to keep. That's what the king does. And I want you to think about our king, Jesus, who longs for companionship with his own. And King Jesus takes the crown on his head and sets it aside, laying the prerogatives of divinity aside. He steps into our broken and fallen world, takes on human flesh, fully God, fully man. And then he takes the foolishness and rebellion of his own on himself. And then he gives his life sacrificially. He dies in our place, satisfying the wrath of a holy God against sin, of which he had none, but he had all of ours. He was buried and raised again. See, our king for us sacrificed. And what, what more could he give? You know, think of the song. Nothing. He gave himself on our behalf that we might be with him forever. His beauty, you see, was derived from his character and his self-sacrifice. Now, Ahasuerus threw a banquet for Esther, Esther's banquet. It was massive, no doubt. King Jesus prepares a table for us. It's a very simple table, you all, and you're sitting at it now. This is what we hold. We hold bread and we hold a cup. The, the bread reminds us that his body, because he was a man, was broken so that we wouldn't have to be broken. And we hold this cup. You talk about simplicity, a crumb, so to speak, and a tiny, you know, sliver of juice. But that represents his blood. Life is in the blood. His life was poured out because that's what sin deserves so that our life wouldn't have to be poured out, that we might live with him forever, that our sins might be cleansed, forgiven. Think about this too. Think about beauty. Um, it tells us that beauty is not, is not from the outside on top. It's not cosmetic. Beauty's not outward. 
It tells us that beauty is actually deepened by trials and suffering. This is what Jesus did. Now, at this table, Paul tells us we remember. Now, I want you to keep this in mind. When you come to the Lord's table, you remember two ways. You remember backwards, because we remember this is what Jesus did for me. But Paul says, as often as you drink it and take, take the bread and the cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And so you see, we, we, we lift our heads and we remember forward. Now, when you remember forward, I want you to get this picture in your mind's eye. There is a banquet in our future that will make the banquets of King Ahasuerus look like bag lunches. And if you've placed your faith in Christ, then you have a seat at that banquet. Now think of this. Some of us do. I can get here. You're kind of, yeah, I know I got a seat. I hope I make it. Are you kidding me? If you're in Christ Jesus, you will make it to the banquet. You can't not make it to the banquet in the Lord Jesus Christ, you see. So the, the seat is there for you and you will be there and we will enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb. But now, but in between time, oh, we come to this simple table, don't we? But the most beautiful table, secured by who? The beautiful one. The beautiful one, the Lord Jesus Christ. How was he beautiful? Because Isaiah says he was nothing to look at. He had no appearance. You see, again, we get, we get beauty redefined, don't we? Now beauty, we understand, is defined by self-sacrifice, by humility, by giving up my rights. Lord Jesus, thank you that you gave up all that we might be with you forever. You'd secure a place for us at the table by your life, death, and resurrection. And we remember that at this very simple table today. Oh, for, for, for eyes that can't see, it's really not much to look at. But with eyes of faith, it's beautiful. For your body broken and your blood shed for us, we give thanks. Take and eat the bread and drink the cup. Let me invite you to stand for our benediction and you are going to participate in the benediction in this way. Uh, you remember uh, King Ahasuerus when he, you know, slept with a woman, if she didn't please him, then she was put away and put away for life, you all. Uh, there was no freedom there. They never got out of that. They never had a life of their own. And the only time they would see the king is if he delighted in them and called them by name. Now, here's what we know about King Jesus. He longs to be with us and us to be with him. And he secured that by his life, death, and resurrection. Uh, there's no uh, concubines. There's, there's no second-tier wives. There's, there's no house of women where you stay and you're not called. Now, in the gospel, you understand. The gospel says the king delights in you and calls you by name. That's what the gospel says. So we're going to speak the gospel to each other. 
So before you walk out of these doors, I want you to turn to at least two people. You know, you can do three if you want. You know, extroverts can do five. Introverts may just not do any. I don't know, you know, if I'm an introvert myself. But I want you to look at someone and say, the king delights in you and calls you by name. And I want you to turn to someone else and say, the king delights in you and calls you by name. This is the gospel that we walk in. Do that and you can be dismissed.